Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I'm Rivka Rivera. Rivka, happy May Day. Thanks, Frank. You too. Yeah, it is May 1st, otherwise known as May Day, the day that we commemorate the struggles and achievements made by the labor movement here in America, although I think it might be an international holiday as well. I think it is international. Okay, cool. And it's a super appropriate day because we're actually recording this a day early because we wanted to talk specifically about the writer's strike. Yes, this is a very very on-theme episode for us. Um, Yes, we are recording this uh, on Monday. The WGA, the Writers Guild of America, has until, I believe, midnight tonight to cut a deal with the studios and the networks. And it is looking like the deal will not be cut. It, it, it is almost certain that the writers will be going on... pretty certain that there's a strike. Strike starting uh, Tuesday, which is the day that this episode releases. So we're going to be talking about this strike as if it is... As if it has begun today. Yeah, because pretty much. So, and I think we, we've talked about this a li- in the month leading up to the strike. We've been talking, we shared the Charlie Kaufman speech, which, you know, some people felt like that was also prepping us a little bit of a rallying call uh, to get writers ready for this impending strike. But the WGA is is was one of the strongest unions in the sense that when they threaten a strike we know it's very real because they've done it really strongly before and have made great gains the last strike was from 2007 to 2008 and last month wga members voted 98 percent in favor of going on a strike so there's massive solidarity here and they really don't strike until it's really really necessary and it is extremely necessary uh, right now, because like most industries in this country, exploitation of labor force in the entertainment industry has just continued to increase in really horrible, shitty ways. So currently, there are six corporations that own 90% of the media industry. God damn. Yeah. Some capitalist shit for you, right? Like, I'm going to say it again, because it's six corporations, only 90% of them. And the media industry is huge. So we're talking film and TV. We're talking late night shows. It's also important to compare numbers like that to, you know, countries that have, quote unquote, state media, because that's something we hear here in America, which is like, you know, thank God we don't have, you know, state controlled media like uh, like Russia does. Well, you know, what we do have is six companies that control almost right. all of the media. So is it is one necessarily worse than the other? Right. And it's, you know, for those of us who are taking in the content and maybe have never thought about who is owning this media, it's easy to see lots of different names on, you know, when the reels happen at the end and you might think, well, there's so many different places that I get my media from. But ultimately, those are just six, six corporations that have bought out all of those other companies. So you really, there's one to six people in charge of that. And so what's important to know is that these capitalists are represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP. And so that is who the WGA is in negotiations with. And this this fact I love, this was something that Alex O'Keefe had said, who is a WGA writer and activist. He's known for writing on the bear 
He said that if AMPTP met writers' demands in full, it would cost less than 2% of Hollywood's profits. It's just so staggering that these companies have so much money. They just have so much money and they're just being so tight-fisted with it. It's staggering. Again, we're going to get into it with, we're going to be watching Newsies, but it really is like, it's just like, it's such a wild thing that you're like, only a Disney villain could encompass like this amount of like chaotic greed because it's, that's all it is. There's no justification for it. I mean, the only slight justification, which is bullshit, is that we live in a growth economy. You know, the, the entire American and global economy is built on the conceit that it will always be growing for infinity. Uh, we will always have economic <laughs> growth. Mm. So when considering that, uh, you know, 2% might actually eat into your year-to-year -year growth. But if you're just considering the fact that we, that these companies are already making billions in profits, it's 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 just a drop in the bucket. This is the grotesque context of this strike. It's usually, you know, but this is the context of just our world today, as you, as our listeners know. Um, the other piece of context that's important is the last time that there was a major strike in 2007, 2008, we were like, like the big piece of technology that was coming was streaming and streaming was new. But what was wild to think about that, I didn't even realize the timeline of this, Frank, but like they were thinking about streaming and protecting their writers, right? But we hadn't even seen House of Cards yet. We hadn't even seen Orange is the New Black. So like- wow. It was, yeah, and I forgot that. Like, so they were ready for it, but they had no idea, like, what the success of those shows for writers and writers' work w was going to be. Now we're dealing with the repercussions of streaming and needing to get fair wages and fair payment for that. And for, I think we've, we've also talked about this a few times on this podcast, but what happened, what changed in streaming is that you used to get residuals as actors and writers from work that you did on network television. And with the advent of streaming, there were often like streaming payouts up front, but there was not a residual. So anytime someone would watch this, it wasn't like you were getting checks for the amount of downloads, which would really be what would be fair. So if you have a wildly successful show, like God, and House of Cards feels like forever ago, but I just, that was one that came to mind or like any of the shows that now are successful that are like streamers that sure. are not on cable or network TV. Those writers are not seeing any, those writers or actors are not seeing anything, any payments for like every time that plays. So it doesn't matter how successful it is. They've already seen their payment, which is a problem because there used to be like a really flourishing middle class of writers. Like you really used to be able to have like live and have healthcare and pay your rent and like live as a writer. And so where the healthcare comes in is like, if you're not getting your payment from you're waiting for a residual, maybe you haven't written on a show for a while, but you know, you're going to get a residual in a certain quarter, which is how you get your healthcare. You have different quarters that you need to make a certain amount of money as a writer. You could say, well, I know that I wrote forever and spent all this time on this show. That's going to be running. Like, let's say back in the day, it was Murphy Brown. Right. And you would be getting residual checks in. You would have um, sustained income and therefore you would have sustained. You wouldn't be worried about losing your health care. Now you can have writers who have a deeply successful show and then like two months later lose their health care and be worried about rent. Because you have to because you because for both actors and writers, you have to hit like an income minimum essentially to qualify for those uh, guild health care plans. Yeah, it's I mean, it's insane. And another big part of this is the fact that a lot of streaming shows and now cable shows as well 
are much, much shorter than the network shows of old. Right. You know, it used to be like if you got staffed on a network sitcom or drama, that meant you were churning out 22 episodes a year. Now, you know, Netflix shows, streaming shows will do 10 episodes, eight episodes, six episodes. So it's a much shorter amount of guaranteed work uh, for much less money. Exactly. And so and what also came along with this, which is one of the big demands of this strike, is that they they started this thing called mini rooms. So there used to be the writer's rooms. Right. And if you were writing for a show, like you were saying, Frank, that we knew was going to last and wasn't even a designated six or eight episodes, you would have a pretty robust writer's room with like up to like 24 writers in it. I mean, you could have a lot of people inside that writer's room and not only was it a great place to have a wealth of different ideas and different people, but you could have a whole wealth of different people who are like you writers who've been writing for a really long time and people who are just breaking through. What these mini rooms have done is that there's sort of this newer version of a writer's room that is mini, so fewer people. But those writers are probably, because they're smaller, going to be the writers with the most experience. So you're cutting out a whole group of of writers who would be the writers who are breaking into the industry, coming into the scene, um, which is what we need and we want. So it's really problematic because now how do you break into the industry? And this is disproportionately going to affect BIPOC women and LGBTQ plus writers. Absolutely. Um, it also, like you said, Frank, means that you're not writing for as long period of time. There's less sustainability. And another thing I found out, which was like, ugh, super shitty is that knowing that there's potential strikes coming along, what some of these corporations have done is like they might take a mini writer's room and say, go write, you know, a season of this show. They won't put it on the air, but they have it written so that when there's something like a strike that comes along, they have material and it's almost like a like a war tactic. Yeah, they're like stockpiling. Yeah, they're, exactly. Which is shitty. Shitty little loophole. Explain to me a little bit about the the minimum basic agreement, because I know yeah. that that's going to be like a huge crux of the uh, negotiations and this, when, what they'll potentially be striking over. So the minimum basic agreement is basically your, you know, if you're saying like, this is the minimum that we're going to pay you, your rate, your salary rate that you can get paid if you're WGA as a writer. So, you know, minimum wage, essentially. And that rate has never been raised that hasn't been raised in a while, and it certainly hasn't taken into account the fact that we have had massive inflation. It's just not taking account for anything. And like I said, also with these mini rooms, often they use it as a way to pay very experienced writers a minimum basic agreement rate because they're making these rooms smaller and smaller and therefore harder and harder to get into. So anyone just wants to get in and they can kind of pay you what they, they're setting that rate. So that's like one of the biggest demands right now is raising that rate to I would I would assume at the bare minimum reflect inflation but also to reflect these factors like I said that there are no residuals being had for streaming and all of this and who knows where AI I mean I'm curious to know how those conversations are coming in but I'm sure that's going to reflect a lot of what the what the thought was back in 2008 when they were thinking about streaming that's sort of the version of AI now so assuming that the WGA is striking this means that production, or at least production that re still requires writers, is going to be shut down, which means that any film or TV that's already in production, that's already shooting, that'll continue, but anything where a writer's room is still currently ongoing will have to shut down. 
it won't necessarily mean anything in the short term for the consumer in terms of like movies and TVs shows going away. It, it, it'd be more something where like we would start to see the effects in six months, a year, or something like that. But, you know, we support this strike. Everyone who cares at all about organized labor and people getting paid what they deserve should support the strike. I know it's Hollywood. I know it seems like a very glamorous, high-paid industry. But if you go online, there are stories from entry-level writers talking about how they, you know, they could barely afford rent still. You know, you know, working in a mini room on your first job, even on a big show, sounds cool. But when you actually crunch the numbers, they're not making all that much. They're making less than, you know. Along the lines of what you're making, you know, there's it's such a myth, I think. And then we're pushing past now in arts in general that, like, we do this because we love it. And isn't the sheer love of it enough? Like, oh, you get to be seen. Your writing gets to be noticed. And maybe you don't have health care and you're starving and freezing in your apartment but like you're doing it because you're gonna have visibility and visibility should be enough but again in the context that should never be okay and in the context of like the disgusting amounts of money that we said top six corporations but it's like last year eight major hollywood ceos made over 770 million in annual salary and again like you said frank some people are Literally doing the thing that we're buying and making all that money. And the other thing I want to say is like, not only is this good for us, just like in a moral solidarity, it's literally good for everyone because WGA continues to set the standard for other unions. So the DGA was going to strike, but they'll wait to strike. And based on what the WGA strike benefits and gets, and like if they get all their demands met, like a minimum basic agreement rate, that rate is also going to dictate what the DGA can bargain for and then sag after can bargain for. So this is in everybody in the entertainment industry's interest, not only because solidarity is the only way to go, but because it's going to affect us all in the long term in positive ways. Question for you. Like, I was thinking about this just in terms of like, because I've you hear the term scab, but like I had to look up and define like, right, a scab is someone who just it's pretty basic, continues to work even when a strike is called. So they're going to say pencils down. And if you literally are like, you know what, I'm going to just do some work on the side and like maybe finish up this project I'm doing, like that is scabbing. There's also this kind of like tricky area where like if you're a writer and you're not WGA, which is like it's 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 these unions are hard to get into. And it might feel like, which it's totally understandable, like, well, fuck it. Like, I haven't been able to fucking, for all the other bullshit reasons, get my foot in the door. Like, maybe this is a chance for, like, why would it matter for me? You know, like, let me get it, my foot in the door right now. I'm not even part of that union. Because you see this opportunity, you jump in to take a job. Know that <laughs> you will probably be blacklisted from WGA if it's found out you did scab. Second, like I said, this is all good for you and important for you, because even if you're not union, it's going to set standards of wages and see like so many people are making a decision to like not get income. It's really it's not like an ex it's not like great. It's not like all these writers are like, you know what? I'm fine. As we just said, there is no so many of these writers have are not getting the income they need right now as is. So everyone's taking a risk. Don't be a scab. Yeah, solidarity is paramount across industries. Don't be a scab um, or else you're going to get soaked.
that's a that's a great newsies segue and we'll be talking yeah we'll be talking a lot more about this in the context of the movie if you don't understand anything we just said just go watch newsies yes because as they say in the film newsies scabs get soaked you know that which means that they get beat up and you know we're not we're not advocating any (laughs) writers to go beat up other writers but you know that is what happens amidst labor struggle and you know we should get to our conversation because it's a it's a big one it's a great one uh but first just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes and you'll be directly supporting this show You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we are going to take a break, but we will be right back with our epic conversation about Newsies with Harvey K. Today, we have joining us Harvey Kay. Harvey Kay is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and a member of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, an award-winning author and editor of 18 books, including The British Marxist Historians, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and FDR and Democracy. He has also written for lots of newspapers and magazines and advised arts projects such as Four Freedoms Park in New York's East River, with figures ranging from TV producer and liberal activist Norman Lear to progressive politicians Nina Turner and Marianne Williamson. And he grew up in northern New Jersey and spent a lot of time in Brooklyn. So welcome, Harvey. We're so happy to have you. You know, I do a lot of stuff, but this I don't think I've ever been quite as excited, at least not in the last few years, as I am to be with you too. I am your biggest fan for this podcast. So there you go. That is, Harvey, such high praise. Thank you so, so, so much. You, you really have. You've been our most vocal fan supporter. Um, you and I message almost daily about you know, the, stuff, <laughs> the stuff that we're talking about and, and, and other stuff as well. Um, and it's been yeah. such it's been so lovely getting to know you and I'm so glad you made the time and are here joining us to talk about this movie. And I I, I don't want people to stalk us but you and I are going to meet up in Brooklyn next week. <laughs> that is true. We're going to get some lunch, we're going to we're going to dish, we're going to air it all out. Yeah, and Rifke, if I could just tell you one of my favorite episodes was the one with your father. Oh, okay. thank you. Yeah, that was- Partly because he was closer in age to me than anybody else that's been on the show, but but the most important thing is is that is that it was interesting really to hear a voice of someone who's been in the movement, who who makes movies and and who teaches about it. And he asked, and so there was that pedagogical thing that kind of came through in his life, which as a professor for 45 years i could appreciate that's awesome Mm. i will definitely let him know although i'm sure he will listen to this episode as well and yeah we really appreciated it it was very cool in this context to be able to reflect on films with him and you know you learn something different and i got a sense of just like i was in awe as well always of Mm -hmm. his brain yeah I, i could hear your enthusiasm not just for your dad but for what you were learning yeah, it was great. Also amazing for me to see some like a contemporary's parent talk about <laughs> these things that we care about so much 
if it had been a conversation with my father, he had been like, how much fucking money am I making right now? What is this? Like, so. <laughs> That's great. And yet, Frank's yeah. father fed us all the most amazing food, th- nourished us through college. So That's true. He's a generous man, for he's sure. He's a generous, amazing, amazing guy. Wait, I'm, hold on. Wait, but you guys went to school out at Carnegie Mellon? No. So, yeah. And yeah. Yes, yes, in Pittsburgh. Um, but we would occasionally, uh, you know, we would come to New York for for visits on breaks, and my ah, yeah, of course, my home right. was was close by, you know, just by uh, proximity. And my dad uh, ran an Italian restaurant. He was an owner and operator for many years. Wow. So whenever uh-huh. whenever we would all come as a big group, we'd be like, let's stop in at Frank's dad's restaurant, which was one one of the most amazing uh, businesses. Like your your family could be in growing up because it was just like, yeah. yeah, we get to all go and eat our faces off. Um, well, we have an amazing film that we're talking about today that I am so glad you chose for us. We are talking about Newsies, the historical American musical produced by the Walt Disney Corporation, released in 1992, directed and choreographed by Kenny Ortega, written by Bob Zudiker and Noni White with an original score by Alan Menken and Jack Feldman. The film stars a young Christian Bale, David Mosco, Bill Pullman, Anne Margaret, and Robert Duvall. Uh, although it was a box office flop with a $15 million budget, it only made around $2.8 million. Uh, despite that, the film gained a cult following and became a Tony Award-winning musical a few years ago. Yes, and it's currently out. It's in London right now. Like, it's, it's yes. on... The West End currently, so quite relevant. And, and the musical version is available to watch on uh, Disney+. Plus. Can I just add a note to what you're saying, which I think you'll really, you'll like. So I, I couldn't help, like one of your guests, Christian, one of your friends, mm-hmm. I think he was talking about mm-hmm. how he did some homework before he did. So I threw myself into it, you know, I just, and I just came across this article that actually explained why Disney did bring it to Broadway. So what okay. happened was, although the film was a flop financially, there it became this like cult thing for kids. And apparently kids at summer camps and at schools, not unlike Star Trek fans, were taking it and ter- doing it, but adding their own bits of the script into it. Mm. And somebody had transcribed the music. I mean, it, it was taking off. And Disney, this is a talk about movies versus capitalism. <laughs> or capitalism versus movies, Disney figured, wait a minute, that we can make some money on this. <laughs> so they so they Absolutely. grabbed hold of it, took it back, okay, you might say, late claim to it, and then produced the stage show, which actually ran for two years, I guess, on Broadway. And, a and thousand, won a bunch of Tonys, yeah. And yep. toured the nation, you know? I mean, really. And I, In fact, now I'll just mention this little story. So I was talking to this friend and comrade of mine who's a – major labor organizer. And I told him about what I was going to be doing today with movies and capitalism. I was, he said, wow, it sounds like a really interesting podcast. So I was telling him, oh, you got to, you got to listen to it. Then I told him what I was going to do and, and told him a bit about what we'll talk about. And he said, I have to hear it. I said, well, thanks. No, he (laughs) says, my 12 year old daughter is currently in a production of Newsies at her school. Wow. You know, so it's, it's a, it's just amazing. And it, the appeal is, I'm sure, as we'll get into, is something that Disney itself wouldn't. Oh, by the way, sorry, I'm going to stop. I'm waiting for the first question. <laughs> no, no. 
<laughs> you're perfect. This is like this is how this is how a podcast works. You know, we just we okay. Can. Well then, okay. So the first question, of course, since I'm a pro at listening to you guys, real quickly before we get to that first question, ah. um, we'll give our quick synopsis for anyone who maybe hasn't rewatched the movie in a while. Um, so Newsies, the plot is loosely based on the New York City Newsboys strike of 1899 and follows the story of Jack Cowboy Kelly, played by Christian Bale, a charismatic and streetwise newsboy who rallies his fellow sellers to strike against the publishers, specifically uh, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, who have raised the prices of the papers, uh, cutting into the boys' already meager earnings. And then with the help of a reporter, the newsboys form a union and stand up for their rights against corporate interests. And just a little context, and I know we're going to get a lot of the historical context for this film from you, Harvey, but just some context about the year that this movie came out. It was 1992. Bill Clinton was just elected president, defeating incumbent George W. Bush and independent candidate Ross Perot. H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush. So sorry. The United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, union staged a nationwide strike against Safeway and Kroger supermarkets, which lasted for 28 days. And the strike involved over 70,000 workers and was one of the largest in the history of the U.S. The Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. And other films that came out included Thelma and Louise, Aladdin, Scent of a Woman, The Bodyguard, and Wayne's World. Additionally, in pop culture, Real World debuts on MTV and the Mall of America opened in Minnesota, becoming the largest mall in the United States. So that is 1992 when this film came out for Disney. All right. So, Harvey, you know it's coming. Why did you choose this movie? Okay. well, I'm going to tell I'll first tell the personal part of the story and then I'll explain on a larger political scale. The personal part was I have two daughters, okay, who are now, you know, early 40s and 30s. And so they were kids when this movie came out. And I mean, I'm, I'm, an, active in, I'm an active labor unionist. I was also a founder of the Wisconsin Labor History Society, which was a labor organization, not an academic organization. So every year we would go to uh, Milwaukee, in fact, for what was called Labor on the Lake. And it's when all the unions turn out. And in one year, in fact, it was, I think, around the same time as this movie came out, I was the advisor to the refurbishment of a downtown square in Milwaukee, which was named after the long-term socialist mayor of Milwaukee. I don't know if people realize Milwaukee in the 20th century was governed by socialists, at least socialist mayors. And they call it now Zeidler Union Square, which honors all the workers who were killed on the job um, it's a worker's memorial in essence. So, my, And my daughters, they collected T-shirts of every union that they could get. I mean, they, they grew up, you know, on the left. Let's put it that way. So this movie came out and my, I said, well, we'll have to, have to see this. And we did. And my younger daughter got a crush on Christian, had a crush on Christian Bale, but also really liked the idea that here were these kids who, you know, defied the bosses, right? So... I, I I never forgot that. But the other thing is, and this is the fact that people can't see when we were smiling when the name Disney was said, Disney was not a welcoming place for union activism ever. Okay. Although I do believe recently they actually signed a contract with a union down at Disney World at you know the Disney parks. Yeah, I, for the employees of the parks, yes. Right. So anyhow, let's re- and so let me give you this larger sort of historical context. Let's not forget, 1970s, the United States 
corporate elite declared war on working people. And I mean declared war. Um, and, they, and they targeted the achievements of the 30s and the 60s, the democratic achievements. So David Rockefeller gave a famous speech back in 1970, basically saying we're under siege. Uh, the Powell Memorandum, the Lewis Powell Memorandum was produced, which was a memorandum by a very significant lawyer, Lewis Powell in Virginia, to the Chamber of Commerce telling them it's time to organize because capitalism is under siege. We've got to do something about this. And by the way, two weeks after he delivered the memorandum, he was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And third, but by no means the, the last is the fact that in 1973, four and five and six, right in there, what there was organized something known as the Trilateral Commission. This is not a conspiracy theory. David Rockefeller decided to act on his own advice to his fellow capitalists. We have got to organize. So they created this organization, the Trilateral Commission, and they produced a report authored by Zbigniew Brzezinski, at least for the part of, he helped organize it and he wrote, he helped write this, this, this volume. I could show it to you as a show and tell, but no need to do that <laughs> as we're not on YouTube. And the author of the American chapter, because it was one for Western Europe, one for East Asia, and one for the United States, was Samuel Huntington, who was a big professor at, at Harvard University. And in the, the one on the United States, it was, uh, he argued, Samuel Huntington, that Basically, the democracy was out of control in America, that huh. people that they had to, wow. to I'll paraphrase it. We've got to suppress the democratic spirit. And they actually named the targets. They said um, public employee unions, uh, the women's movement, the poor people's movement, um, minority demands, liberal uh, media and they call them value-oriented academics. In other words, humanities and social science professors who were talking too critically of capitalism. Mm. And, this be and this was published by NYU Press. This is not like a, an underground effort by any yeah. means. And let me just make it clear, two of the key members, of, there were hundreds of these corporate and political figures. Two key figures in that were George H.W. Bush, who you mentioned, and Jimmy Carter. Okay, so it was Republicans and Democrats, and, and so the declaration of war. And we used to say back in the 70s, the fastest growing enterprise in the United States was union-busting law firms. And then, of course, the decade is capped off when Reagan fires the air traffic controllers in 1981, yep. when they went out on strike. The irony there is the air traffic controllers actually endorsed Reagan over Carter in the 1980 elections. So... Then we went in the 1990, in 1980s themselves, and this is the Reagan era, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, labor is taking up beating, you know, the pensions are being, I mean, it was terrible, okay? And of all things, Disney in 1992 brings out a movie in which working class kids have organized, and even though they don't, I don't want to give away the punchline, which we'll get to, but the point is, they essentially win the strike. Mm. But of course, the key thing here is, as Frank mentioned, it was something of a box office flop, but they decided not to invest in promoting it, Disney. Who knows? Maybe somebody said to them, you know, this is danger. I, I'm, I, I yeah. feel like I'm exaggerating, but it is the case. This was a pro-labor film and it's just striking. So here we are. I've been thinking a lot about it. The Amazon workers, they're not, you know, 12-year-olds as many of those newsboys were. These are young people organizing across the country. And frankly, 
I thought that his, I don't believe history ever repeats itself, but we hear echoes of that sort of dynamism. Okay. Sure. And then, yes. of course, we had the hearings two weeks ago or so when Bernie took on Howard Schultz um, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Senate. Now, I, I know I offered you a whole bunch of films, but Newsies is the one that I've carried with me ever since 1992 mm-hmm. as a film that when Ben Mankiewicz once asked me of TCM said to me, name four progressive movies. And the first one I said to him was Newsies. And he, <laughs> he said, what? And I explained it to him. So there you go. Yeah, I got to say, Harvey, I'm so happy you picked this film because I live with a Newsies stan who this was also like my partner. This was such a deep part of his upbringing and personality. And I've been hearing about Newsies for ever and always kind of like, okay, just don't talk about that too much. Like, why are you talking about this Disney movie? Like weird. And then we watched it and I was like, I got it. I had to apologize. I was like, oh, Unimens, this movie (laughs) is a banger. This movie is so not even I mean, I think I was just so surprised at how like it just goes there. Nothing about it is sanitized. Like this is a Disney mm. movie and you have police officers punching children in the face. They oh, are yeah. punching kids <laughs> in the face. It is like you don't see that in these quote unquote like, you know, dark movies that are going there. They sanitize that. So it makes a lot of sense. He's very I mean, he's very pro-union, very lefty, but like this was also, I imagine, like he just like, he loved the dancing and the like, you know, but you're just as like a little, as a youth to be just like very clear on like, yeah, if we come together as a collective, we will win. And it's just, you get the message. You're like, there's no way you can watch that movie and not get the message that corporate power is in charge and- the police work for them and the state works for them in some capacity, you know, that there is, this is happening. And, 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 and yes, everything you just said is, and it's absolutely the case. And let's also not, let's also give credit to the kids in the fact that they punch back. Oh, they punch. Yes. Yes. No, thank you for saying that. That was another thing that I thought was really fascinating because in so many, so many of these storylines, again, even in, in films made for adults that you're like, I thought this was going to be like liberal or pro-union. You know, I thought this was going to be a lefty film. And you're like, why am I getting the sense that they're telling me not to be self- in self-defense? That there's actually like this undercurrent message of like, don't defend yeah. yourself. It's better to be peaceful. That's always works. And you're like, that's weird. The message here with um with David the, yes. the friend mm-hmm. character who comes in. So there's Jack, the lead, and then Jack meets David, who really becomes like kind of, he's the one who- He's, he's the academic. He's the academic, yes. He's he, the, he, yeah. I think of him as, it's like, one is the activist, the leader. Yes. And mm-hmm. the other guy is the intellectual. Yes. yes. So he's the one giving you know? the messaging. And he also, he he's rare because all of a lot of the Newsies are orphans. He has a family, but really important, his father has- just been um lost his job because there were no unions to help him and he got hurt working in a factory and so that's like the context for for david becoming a newsie he meets jack um but david's kind of like through line when he first gets gets involved with the newsies he's like whoa why are you i don't know violence is the answer and by the end he's like let's go fist up which i think is a really interesting message for like this Disney film for children, it doesn't sanitize that at There's all. There's the scene, as long as you brought up Jack's father being injured, not Jack, David's father being injured. Is, yeah. There's the scene in which, I guess, David and Jack are out on the fire escape. 
this is where that he Jack, I think, says to David, how'd your father get injured or something like that? And he said, well, he was working at a factory, got injured. And of course, the bosses, they, the bosses couldn't use him any longer. They fired him. And he says that this is interesting. It's David who says, because he didn't have a union. So how did your pop get away? Uh, the factory. It was an accident. He's no good to them anymore, so they just fired him. He's got no union to protect him. Okay. And at that point, they're not organizing yet. So it's like David's yeah. ripe, but it, it's like he doesn't realize that he's got this. He's already got this sense of what a union means, but he's never been in a position where he's going to have actually have to step outside of the, you know, the norm. Well, this movie is a perfect marriage of politics and like narrative structure. Like the, I found the politics in this movie to be flawless like this this movie might have the most I, i'm not even i'm not even this movie might have the most perfect politics of any movie we've done so far that is great um, i've been worried about that actually i thought everyone's gonna think i chose a film only because it's just all good politics but know? but it's also an incredibly uh well-structured film because like you're saying um when we're introduced to David, we find his dad has lost his job on the factory floor because of an injury, doesn't have a union to protect him. So we, and he's making this sacrifice. He's not going to school. He has to sacrifice school to work and earn for his family. Jack as our lead is someone who has always been on his own. He's always been by himself. So for him, the journey of being basically like a lone wolf individual to having to, to not only joining the union, but leading the union is one of like, uh, the the journey from individualism to solidarity. And I mean, just from top to bottom, like you understand that these kids are getting exploited. Like there's no, there's no two ways around it. And a lot of the characters we meet, like David's father are, are down on their luck. There's the trolley, the big trolley strike happening in the background, which sort of like fuels some of the ideas that germinate for the newsies. And then of course we, when we meet Joseph Pulitzer for the first time, who is our villain in the movie, I mean, it, it like puts it like perfectly plainly. He's just like, we got to make by more Robert profits. Duvall. Played by Robert Duvall. Yes. Doing, yeah. I, I don't know what the hell Robert Duvall is doing in this movie. <laughs> he is, I, I know that. I know that Joseph Pulitzer was Hungarian, but Robert Duvall's on another, he's in another movie. He's like in an SNL sketch. Uh, but but you, people should know that Pulitzer had an incredibly interesting life for what it's worth before he achieved what he achieved. Okay, mm -hmm. as this capitalist, right? But the other thing is, I was reading at one point that apparently Pulitzer was liked by working working class men, which oh. which offers a kind of irony there. And then I'll tell you this other bit of irony. So it, this film is literally the Gilded Age. This is the age in which it's the Second Industrial Revolution. The robber barons are, re I mean, really are in political and economic control of America. And work, the working class is not silent at all. I mean, farmers are organizing their own organizations, which eventually become the populist party, okay? A massive political party. Um, workers are organizing labor unions. They are in New York and other places. Uh, immigrant workers are creating socialist and anarchist political parties. In 1898, Eugene Debs and others, Eugene Debs was the great, railway worker, leader, and really the foremost socialist probably in American history, they created what was called the Social Democracy, which two years later became the Socialist Party. Uh, 
So in the end, because of the fact that I I don't know what I would criticize of the politics, I would like to talk about if I were making the movie, how, what else would I have thrown in? Yeah. I'd imagine the Harvey K version of Newsies would be like six hours long. Uh, it would have so much information. Um, maybe not and as many dance numbers. Already, I mean, it's two well, hours. I would cast the two of you in it. Believe me. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you. Are we newsies or are we are we sticking to realistic age casting? Well, no, here? there were girl newsies. That's well, I, what, okay. So if I were, <laughs> I just mean my. I mean, but I guess I could pull off twelve. Like, oh, you is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I can see you, and they, they can't all see you, but you could pull it off. But the, here's the other thing: in the stage version of Newsies, Disney changed. Sarah Jacobs, the girl that becomes the love interest, the, the David's David sister. sister. Yeah, her character doesn't exist. They create another character, a woman journalist, who in the story in the story is Pulitzer's daughter. In which the stage version, and she's she's oh, I mean, she's sort of a she's a in her own fashion a feminist. I mean, it's a very very interesting kind of change to the to the stage show but the point is you bet i i have a i have a part for you don't worry oh yeah let's <laughs> let's do it i'm ready for the like six hour version of this i mean well, this- that's what all those teenagers were doing back in the 90s they were literally taking it and and turning it into what, how they would have made it yeah including my partner i'm sure i i wanted to touch on that real fast because that was my experience growing up newsies wasn't a big one for for my family and my household but i had like cousins mm-hmm. i had like other friends in elementary middle school high school they were like newsies is one of my favorite movies of all time and i remember mm-hmm. seeing it a lot uh at that age and clearly not grasping its politics but i mean we definitely performed in my show choir we did seize the day you know which is oh. Every Probably. show choir in the country. Every boys yes. ensemble has done Seize the Day at some point. Uh, you know, and it's a great this I it was so nice revisiting it because like like I was saying, not only is it has great politics, it's just such an entertaining, sweet, uplifting, well done film. I mean, like Kenny Ortega, the director, for a little bit of background on him, he was the choreographer for films like Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day mm. Off, and Dirty Dancing. And he ended up following up this with directing Hocus Pocus and the High School Musical series. So Kenny Ortega, a great uh, musical choreographer and director. He must have been a little frustrated in this one because neither Christian Bale nor David Moscow, is that how you say Yes. The two lead male leads, neither one of them could dance. Or sing. Or sing, yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny you said sing. I I thought Bale's voice was not. I thought oh, I it, enjoy it. it. I'm just th- this was the great for like actors like myself who are like, oh, this is pure acting a song, and it works oh, yeah, and right. it's great. But when they got it, originally wasn't supposed to be a musical, so they actually like talk about. And it's funny, I was in reading different articles. I was like, Christian. One of the favorite things I learned is that Christian Bale was like. I think someone was like, are you going to see Newsies on Broadway? And he's like, oh, no, I don't like musicals. Like, that's my <laughs> terrible. It's like, <laughs> like, okay. That's like, a, and they're like, are you sure it's not? Because you don't want to see someone do like your part. But he's like, I just don't like musicals. I'm like, okay, Christian Bale. He worked hard. He's hard. He's working. Wo- or should I say waking? 
Well, the accents also. I, as, in fact, that's something I wanted to talk about. With yes, you guys. please. As a Brooklyn boy, what do you think? Did people actually talk like that back then? Like, I've never, I've never in my life actually heard someone pronounce "working" "woiking." I'm glad you asked me that because I don't know. I wasn't alive. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, this. The thing is, this. I actually, growing up in and out of Brooklyn, and I lived in Queens for a while too as a kid. People did talk. There were people who did talk. In fact, I want to go further than that. I know people who are now older who have sort of that accent. <laughs> okay, it's so it it it's an exaggeration, of course, that sure. what you heard, especially because it was meant to be. And whoever their dialect coach was, like, I think just was like, if you get any word, you make sure you say woik and yeah. like that word comes up a lot since it is about the woiking class when <laughs> like, i was growing up there were people that, said, that do, the word doesn't appear in the movie but there were people who said joycey joycey you know yeah of course yeah. i mean the, there's really nothing better than like a movie centered about around a bunch of wise ass kids that was another big takeaway for me like i just oh, love yeah. kids just like with dirty mouths uh, smoking cigarettes the entire I was time, which cigars, was in fact uh, cigars. Absolutely, ast- I was astonished to see that. And we should um, tell people in case they want their kids to see it that they should be forewarned. That's probably the the worst part of the movie for a, a kid to see is you know other than the other than when the cops are punching kids and the kids are punching back. No, it is wild, and especially being the '90s, like with the smoking. Because I remember, I mean, again, I was a Park Slope kid. Like my parents were very like. Don't even look at someone smoking on the street. I'm like, it's fine. But that's shocking. And one of my favorite of the child performers was the kid playing racetrack. And I was Max was, Casella. Yeah. Max Casella. I was like, this, I was like, this kid is so familiar looking. How do I know this kid? And it's actually adult uh Italian American character actor Max Casella as a child. I was blown away by that. I was like, I've always loved Max Casella. This is like reinforcing that he was so good in this movie. I was just gonna say, I wanna, I wanna jump back in real fast and to talk about how this movie doesn't sanitize what actual labor struggle consists of, because I think it's so important. I think it's a, a thing that has certainly been lost to history, at least the history that we're taught in like the American public education system. Yeah, that there at times requires a level of either, you know, destruction of property or violence against other people to achieve these ends. And that obviously no one wants to be violent. No one like looks forward to that, but like they are a requirement to achieving the ends that need to be achieved. So like in this self-defense, self-defense. So in this, in this movie, you see the newsies destroying wagon loads of newspapers uh, and then there's a big part, a big, you know, driving conflict in this movie is wh- whether or not they are going to soak the scabs. And by soak, they mean beat up, uh, which is also right. great slang. I want to bring that back because that sounded <laughs> cool as hell. Well, in that vein, before we leave that, you know how you mentioned the trolley strike? Mm-hmm. And it, and there's that moment where the trolley set on fire, I believe, in the, in the distance on the street. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. the, the scene where you're talking about the resort to violence is that when they have to, when they're going to soak the scabs, they, they overturn a wagon, right? I mean, they, they're out there. Yeah. They're absolutely out there. The violence is of course choreographed, but it's, it's violence. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think what you're talking about Frank too is so my favorite moment of that was, and probably my favorite line in the whole, one of my favorite lines in the movie was um when 
the strike breakers come out right in full force. And so they're like, oh, and and it and it's so clear, too, in these moments where the strike breakers come out and the police. Oh, are and they like, spring the trap on the newsies. Yeah. And they like and close the, police the gates are part on of them. It. Yeah, they close the gates on it. The police are letting it happen. Like, it's very clear what's going on. There's no misunderstanding yeah. about there's not a single good cop in this. There's like no misunderstanding. And then you're like, oh, no, they're screwed. Like, ah. And then you look up and we've already met Brooklyn, like already, because they <laughs> everyone's like, oh, my God. And the, and the earlier when they're organizing, they're like, we don't want to go out to Brooklyn. And we have Spot Conlin, the leader of the Brooklyn Newsies, yeah. which is my favorite. Right. I love Spot Conlin. And when you first meet him, he's like playing with this like boomerang thing. And he's got slingshot. a great shot. Slingshot. slingshot yeah. Boomerang. <laughs> that's oh my god don't take my brooklyn card from me all and right. they and so they show up and they're like screwed and then all of a sudden they look up and they're like brooklyn's there and they're like have no fear brooklyn is here and they just take their slingshots out with these like metal things yeah. and they just start like attacking all of like the police the strike breakers like that's straight up like defense oh yeah yeah that when Br brooklyn's there that that's a classic movie moment of course that's mm -hmm. in war films and other, every other but when that happens and then you you know at that point two things first of all that they're gonna they're gonna win the day mm -hmm. but the other thing that you know is that solidarity has literally expanded beyond the boroughs it, mm -hmm. it went it went yeah. across the river okay and it's it was it was really great i mean that, that was such a fantastic moment you bet Harvey, I'm curious, we, something we talk about on the show is, you know, the the leader versus the organization and how important one thing is versus the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether whether a, a movement really needs a charismatic central figure in order for it to uh, be successful or, or, or be more successful than it might be without. And just in doing a little bit of research about the actual newsboy strike mm. um jack is sort of an amalgam of several of those leaders i think it was kid blink was the actual kid blink the, yeah was the historically kid the, the blink what a name did you see the one the one actor has a patch over his eye yes they did there is a kid blink in this film that they, they call him out a couple times but historically when this is actually happening there was a little bit of a scandal controversy with kid blink and another newsy david simmons who i believe the david character is sort of modeled after where it, it it wasn't confirmed, but there were accusations that they were uh, actually collaborating with the bosses. Um, mm. So they kind of like lost uh, their credibility within the within the union and yeah. had, and like actually resigned their positions. And then the the union efforts like lost a little bit of steam. So I'm curious what you think, Harvey, about like the leader versus the organization and how important one is over the other. I mean, if I in historical terms. And leadership is central. If I can give you an example of just the last few years, I want to refer to a, a labor moment. It was the Donald Trump sh shutdown of government. There was a, a woman who, who stepped forth, Sarah Nelson, who I will make clear is a very good friend of mine. Okay. And she was that she is the president of the American, sorry, not American, the airline flight attendants union, um, which is huge. Okay, and th their struggles continue. So if anyone's wondering, they are doing their damnedest to organize Delta Airlines right now. Okay, so anyhow, so she stepped forward and she brought together a coalition of you know pilots and others. Basically, told told the government, told Trump, if you don't end 
the shutdown, we're going to call a general strike. And and the reason or the value in, in that, well, first of all, the leverage was that the TSA people were doing sick-ins or they were actually not, you know, they were working and then not getting paid because there was, you know, the question. So, and the point was, was it safe to fly? And, the, and so, the, so the, the flight attendants said, well, we can't fly if it's not, if these people aren't doing the job, if these people are not doing the job effectively. Sure. Now they won, the, they won their threat of the strike. They won, the government op- reopened. Now, I believe, if, if you look closely at the labor story the last several years, that if you hear people talking about general strikes in a city or anything else, they everyone talked about Sarah Nelson. Everyone, constantly, to this day. In fact, they were, you know, she, unfortunately, she's not president of the AFL-CIO. Well, similarly, it's not surprising where, in contrast to politics, people don't aspire to be a strike leader, I don't think. Because keep in mind... A strike means this is the your, your last resort. Mm-hmm. Workers don't go out on strike unless they have no choice but to go sure. out on strike. So it's hard to say that somebody plans on becoming a strike leader, but rather there are people who have aspirations to become union leaders. So, and in fact, quite often the strike leader isn't necessarily the union leader specifically. You need someone who really can not just help, run a union, but who can literally mobilize people and rally people, and which is also a great strength of Sarah Nelson, for example. So I was I was intrigued by the fact that in Jack's case, and I, I think you really presented it smartly when you said this guy was a lone wolf, mm-hmm. okay, who really didn't pl- ever plan on leading anything and decidedly never planned on being part of a union. His dream was to get out of New York and go to New Mexico. Yeah, he's trying right? to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Yeah. And and was and but was not necessarily proud of his lone wolf status either because he in sense he, he actually invented the story of his parents being out there checking out on a ranch that they would all move to. Mm-hmm. Sure. But it is the case that the, that leadership often is thrust upon people and that's an example of that. But it's also interesting that you get the two of them become the leaders. It's like you've got Jack, who is clearly the charismatic figure. Okay, the boys will follow him. But he also knows his own inadequacies, which, by the way, is a sign of his smarts. And he turns to David. Okay, they're going to go out on strike, right? And David's the David's the intellectual. But he says to, to Jack, well, we don't have a union. We can't go out on strike. But Jack instinctively says, it's, it's a great exchange. I mean, you know, you got to ask yourself, I, you'd almost like to interview the guy who wrote these the, the, the lines. And Jack is prepared to rally the boys. And he says, if we stri- have a strike, we have a union, right? Of course, it's a wildcat kind of thing. It, but it, but nevertheless, sure. it leads to the creation of the union. Mm-hmm. Once they're out there, and he's, he's sort of called the boys out from the, the stockyard, what, you know, the newspaper yard out onto the square or circle. And he's basically asking, well, what do you think, guys? Should we do this? Should we not do this? And they're ready to go because they, they want to follow Jack, all right? And then Jack, what does he do? He turns to David. He says, I don't know what to say almost, right? Mm. He says, what do, we, what do we do? So they say to him, what do we do, Jack? And he turns to David, what do we do? And here's David who says, you know, well, we can't win. We shouldn't go out and I'll strike. And David instinctively says exactly what needs to be said. And it, that's the expression of what was previously his consciousness of what labor means when mm. Jack had asked him about his father and he said he got fired. He didn't have a union. 
So it's it's brilliant. The writing, yeah. I, I'm seriously, it Resubmitting was Resubmitting for the Academy Awards screenplay of Newsies. I will say about that friendship as well. I Everything you said is so spot on. It's a profoundly fast, intense, this is all happening in like, they meet and like two days later, they're like in war together. They're best friends. He's part of the family. It was just also like a profoundly like intense codependent yes. relationship. And I just very right. much appreciated that because I'm like, I relate. Sometimes it's that fast and that hard, but it's like, wow, this is really quick when you look at the timeline for how intense they are together. And especially the words aren't used, but it's Jack Kelly and David Jacobs. It's this Irish kid and this Jewish kid. Mm. And they're, and you know, I can't tell you if it happened exactly that way, though I will tell you, I, in the 1930s New Deal years, listen to this, there was a team that were known to write the laws. So whenever FDR wanted to, 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 a law to be written, he would call on these two guys, one of whom was, last name was Corcoran, and the other guy was Cohen. It was like a vaudeville, Corcoran and Cohen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought, I thought it was amazing that they, that whoever wrote it said, no, we're going to put these two guys together. We're going to cross the ethnic lines in yeah. this, mm. in this moment. There is, of course, uh, you know, that, that little bit of anti-Semitism with Mr. Oh, yeah, yes. You know, where you're like, oh, yes. Disney did, they did go there. Yeah, Mr. Wiesel, Mr. Weasel. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I did clock that. But musical theater, I feel like this is sort of like something that comes across often in, in musical theater script where you're like, oh, it's always like it's the most brilliant things written by Jews. And even inside their own writing, there's like a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. You know, yeah. you think about yeah. Oliver, you think about like there's just like particularly in musicals, this like very particular like especially Mr. Wiesel was like a very they wrote him like a very particular trope from like the 19, you know, you're just like, oh, that's yes, in there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It is interesting, this part of it, that it easily would have been the case that in Jack's family, that his mother would have been a factory, would have been a sweatshop worker. Okay. Jewish woman. In fact, one of the things that I, that I if I had produced this film is I would have had either the mother or the daughter of in Jack's, in Dave's family working in one of the oh, sweatshops. Oh, yeah. They made it out as if the woman was at home, you know, like right. she was the homemaker, the wife. And, and, yeah, that, yeah. and then, in fact, you know what is missing in that sense is socialists. Okay. For them socialists to like come, out, come out and say, like, we are socialists. This is a socialist movement. Something. Yeah. I mean, my, gra my, my grandfather, well, three of my grandparents grew up on the Lower East Side and, and then they moved out to Brownsville, basically. I was like making it by crossing over into Brooklyn. And my, so my grandfather was a kid on the street, on the Lower East Side in the streets. You know, he would, he talked to me about socialism as a kid. Right. It, so I'm so my father, neither my father nor I are red diaper babies as in a communist party kind of thing. But but he was, a, you know, he was a young socialist. So it would have been kind of interesting. So, for example, the journalist uh, Denton, was that his name? Denton, yeah. Who wrote yeah. For the Sun. It would have been interesting if if maybe they had made that character the writer for one of the socialist newspapers, the forward or something like that. Yeah, it would be great. You know that that wouldn't have gotten past the executives no, that, at Disney. No, that was, sorry, I'm talking my the Harvey K version right now. Sorry. The Harvey K version, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not forget that the organizing was taking place. There were schools on the Lower East Side that were run by socialists. That you know, it just would have been natural. 
And in fact, if I can, I, I should I should bring us back into the script. There was something else I wanted to. The script has incredible suggestions, like that one about he got fired. He didn't have a union, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another one. I I don't want to fail to to mention this one. Finally, it's very late in the in the film. They've got this really like a general strike of kids in in the city, right? And they're mass pro and a mass demonstration outside. And it's at that point where Jack and David are going to once again go up to try to see Pulitzer. So they and they they get up there and Pulitzer doesn't quite he's not willing to to say he lost yet. Okay? And they walk in and and Pulitzer says to them or especially to Jack, who he's already bought off at one point, and then Jack says, "What the fuck am I doing?" And he breaks because his dearest friends are are, are in jeopardy. Um, he says to him, "You know, you know, I'm paraphrasing. You can find the clip, okay?" Because he says something to the effect of, "I had hopes that that you recognize your own self interest, right? That you know that that we wouldn't come to this. And I told you I'd break you." And he's sort of telling him, "I'm going to break you someday, right?" And then David says, what are you talking about self-interest? You talk about self-interest, but since the strike, your circulation has been down 70%. Every day, you're losing thousands of dollars just to beat us out of one lousy tenth of a cent. Why? Well, you see, it ain't about the money, Dave. If Joe gives in to nobodies like us, it means we got the power. And he can't do that, no matter what it costs. Am I right, Joe? That is the message of the movie. The message that I, that is the message that makes the whole thing so ironic that it was Disney that produced this musical film. It's, that's the pun. That is like, bam, right? It's like somebody, you're like, who? Someone, someone fell asleep at the wheel and was like, oh, a musical (laughs) about (laughs) paper. But you're like, how the fuck? Did this get made at Disney? And it's um, it's an amazing mistake. And I think you're on to something, Harvey. We don't have evidence of it, but I really necessarily, but I do think someone probably like saw it when it was too late and was like, okay, we have to sabotage. Nobody can see this movie. Sabotage the sabotage the press for this because this is, I'm in trouble. As I said before, I mean, I offered you a, a few films and I hope someday you'll have me back to do one of the other films. I would couldn't possibly be as much fun as this one. Absolutely. So the thing is that, when I watched it again, so I've watched it twice again, uh, one time with, with my wife who loved it and we had seen it together before. And I didn't take any notes that, that time in my, I just said, I've got to remember this line. And when we reached that final, that line, I said, oh my God, this is like the best labor film ever made, which sounds very <laughs> weird to say, you know? <laughs> And I and I kept hoping, you know, you know, you know, the power of suggestion. So let's suppose these kids are like who are watching this are, are like 10 years old. Right. They're sitting there watching and they hear that. And then, you know, like years later, they think to themselves, yeah, it's about power. It's about power. Right. And you know, you, you'd like to believe that some of them are out there organizing now. So, uh, in fact, when I. When I was talking to this labor organizer last night and he told me how his daughter was in this in this production, he was just like beaming that his daughter was in this production. And I said, oh, we're going to have to talk about it. And he couldn't have asked for a better musical for his kid to be in at the age of 12, right? 
here he is a labor organizer. My grand, I can hear my mother, grandmother using this word. I, I rarely use a Yiddish word. Kvelling with the, that's how I feel about that film. Oh my God, this is just too rich, right? Absolutely. Kvelling with joy. It made me so happy for all of those reasons. I'm so glad that it exists. I'm so glad that the musical is now as popular as it is because I think like having this historical narrative influence young minds, especially now, is extremely important. And the last thing I want to hit real fast before we go on to the awards is because we haven't really talked a, a lot about him is Joseph Pulitzer, the villain of this film, oh, yeah. who they really portray as just like the terrible rank capitalist. He's he says, like, we got to make more profits. You know, he's clearly does not care about the newsboys. But then they also this is why this movie is so brilliant is they go the extra step of showing the danger, well, one, the power of the press, which he lays mm -hmm. out very clearly in the film, which he says, the power of the press, the greatest power on earth. I can shape the minds of people. Whatever mm -hmm. I write, they will read, and that's what they will think, which is fucking true in a lot of ways. And then there's an amazing sequence where he's conspiring to break up the Newsboys rally, and he gets the mayor of New York into his office and basically bribes him by saying, oh, you know, you know, I'll I'll get together with Hearst. I know we're in a, uh, you know, we're in a, a little bit of a, a business mm. war right now, but we see eye to eye on some stuff. So we'll get him together. We'll get some people together and we'll talk about the next election. <laughs> yeah, I love and that then they, too, yeah. And then they go ahead and show that scene. There's like this card game and it's literally like, there's William Randolph Hearst. Here's a, I forget the other guys, but it's like, these are mm -hmm. all of the newspaper owners. They're all sitting right. together. They're playing cards. Who knows if stuff like, I mean, I'm sure that it has occurred throughout history, but um, really laying out how dangerous capitalist solidarity can be and how how much easier it is for capital and capitalists to organize than the working class, surely by, because of numbers. Because it's much easier yeah. to get five guys in a room playing cards together than it is to organize all of the newsboys across all of the five boroughs and Long yeah. Island. Like that is such a heavy yeah. lift and it's so, it and is, it brilliantly it's so... articulates and shows the myth of competition, right? In a way that a mm. child oh, yeah. will really relate to, because this film that I loved was like, it, it also like it, it speaks to your emotions. And like, for me, when I was a kid, the strongest emotion I had was justice. Like at that age, you're like, justice is everything. And if something's not fair, it's like, what the, f you just like that. I just remember that feeling and it spoke to that as I was watching it. And like, that's not, you're like, wait a minute. I thought their whole driving force, I hope that the whole reason for putting the newsies through this was because they were, at least they were in competition with each other, right? At least I could sort of understand like they, he's really mad at Mr. Hurst. So he has to like win by exploiting us. But then when you find out the mad is just pretend, it's like, we can put that away. We're not really <laughs> mad at it. We'll put our play game away. But like now we're going to really like come after you children. I did actually did. I did make a note of that very scene that, that you were talking about, Frank, and that you're referring to. So we're in Pulitzer's office. He's got his yes men there as and his, you know, you know, circulation guy, whatever. And somebody says, you know. They're not making the money they were making, not you know, not too long ago. Why? Well, we don't have a war right now, right? Because the mm -hmm. wars sell yeah. newspapers, and which the which the newsies themselves appreciated that they had to create their own stories almost to sell the paper. But then, so he says, somebody says, "How do we make more money?" Straight out, how do we make more money? Which you know, that's reasonable in the world in which we lived. How do we make more money? 
but it's not reasonable, right? Not reasonable. So the accountant in the room says, well, we could cut the salaries at the top. And it's clear the answer is, nope, no, we're not going to do that. You know, forget that. And then they start calculating, well, if they raise the price, everyone should realize. So in the morning, the newsies would come in and they would request a certain number of copies to go out and sell. And they had to pay for those copies. Okay. And then they, and then they made their money because they were selling the paper at a higher price than they had to, had to, had to buy it at. They calculate it's such a small amount, right? And, but if all of them do it, and by the way, you, know, you could get the wrong impression that there's like 30 newsboys. There are thousands of newsboys around the mm-hmm. New York City, mm-hmm. thousands. So that will bring in phenomenal money for, for Pulitzer. So they decide this is the way to do it. In fact, one of them says in the room, you're going to hurt the children? One person seemed to have a conscience for a while. <laughs> and, they all, and, probably, and they all looked at him like, give me a break, right? You know. <laughs> It'll, and Pulitzer, I think, says it'll give them more motivation or it'll challenge yeah, them. Yeah. Right? It'll give them, in, it'll give okay. them incentive. Yeah. But here's the thing. So it's done in that one room, but Pulitzer and Hearst both did it, I think, at the same time. My impression is they both raised. So talk about competition. I mean, for all I know, somebody called and said, hey, we're going to do it. What do you think? Can we, get, can we do this? There was no law against their colluding. Okay, the law is preventing that come later. Yeah, all the whole idea that like we're competing against each other and that's what's going to make that's what makes the economy go round is is like bullshit in this movie. And you see it, you're like they don't care. They're just it's like a game for it's like a sex parlor game for them in some way. It was like oddly, you know, they're just like, "Oh, it's fun to like they're playing <laughs> yeah, cards." Right. They're like, "Time out, time out. Let's play cards together and like plan who's the next governor." It's- you know, I'll do, I'm going to I'll make a confession here on this podcast that I don't often mention. Not, it's not a dirty thing. It's just, <laughs> when I came back from, I, I, did my, I, did, I did a graduate degree in London. When I came back, I needed to find a job. And when I went to find work, work, they were convinced I was a, a union organizer, so I wasn't getting those jobs. Boom, okay? So I started going for the big jobs, like Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Believe me, it was not my politics, and, and but but it was. I ended up working for an international bank, Lloyd's Bank International. I was the first international lending officer trainee for Lloyd's Bank International, and the offices were at ninety five Wall Street. You know, it was boring as as for the time I was there during those many months before I went and ended up doing a PhD. But I learned a lot about capitalism, not as in how capitalism works but how capitalism works down at the bottom. Mm. And you think, well, there's international banking, but they actually had a room where they kept all the files, for example, of the bank was nationalized along with other banks in Chile during the socialist period under Allende. Mm-hmm. They had literally brought all this stuff out. And there was this one room where all the files were kept and the accounts were, it was illegal, period. Then part of my education to banking was I had to sit at the reception area I was a high-priced receptionist. And I swear to God, one day a guy walks in in a three-piece suit, and I spoke Spanish, and he and he came from up from Argentina, Buenos Aires, and he said, can we be alone? And I said, well, we can go into this office. He said, no, no, it's glass. He said, can, can we be really alone? So I ran upstairs. I said, just wait a minute. And I told one of the vice presidents, this guy wants to be alone with me. <laughs> and he said, oh, don't worry. Just go where, go, go. So we ended up going into the men's room. 
And he takes off his jacket. He takes off this three-piece you know, suit vest. And he pulls off a money belt. Damn. He pulls out. By the way, this is 1970. This is 50 years ago. It might have happened today, for all I know. Wow. 50 years ago today. And he pulls out $50,000. And he hands it to me. And at that, and by the way, that today would be like at least a quarter of a million dollars. Right. Okay. Sure. In cash. And I thought, shit, I better. So I went up to Philip, to, to the vice president, and I said, what do I do? He goes, take it to so and so. They're going to check it for counterfeits. What it was is in South America, there was, in Argentina, there were these urban guerrillas, Tupamaros. I don't know how many people got killed. I think mostly it was a, it was a hijack, it was a kidnapping racket. So what they do is they would kidnap people and hold them hostage until uh, a ransom. And so what had obviously happened is the Tupam Autos had people working in the banks. So this guy who had an account there was advised by the people down there to take the money to New York, which by the way was probably, I don't think you can walk out of Argentina with 50,000 into the United States with 50,000. That happened a few times from Chile and Argentina and elsewhere. And you, you discover how capitalism operates up here and way down there, okay? And so the collusion and everything else, you know, well, we have more laws about it now, but Donald Trump sort of showed us how much law matters. Wild. All right. Wow. Harvey, just to be respectful for your time, we should get to the awards. So as you know, we like to hand out awards for each movie. Our first one is a point, a point with a view. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. The partnership of Jack and David. Oh, you kind of implied it. You registered it. You said the whole the whole film, but it really is the partnership of those two. What they discovered in each other, Mm. I think, is the politics that we should all experience growing up. Okay, And they never use the word solidarity in the movie. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you noticed it, but it was so clear that that first it's the that Rivka noticed that solidarity of these two young men. Okay, and then it's the solidarity of all these newsboys together, and then it's the solidarity of Brooklyn and Manhattan, and then it's the solidarity of all those kids. So, the best politics goes to, I think, to Jack and David. And if you have somebody else, I'd I'd like to hear it. I didn't have anyone else. I also want to say, and this isn't really related to politics, but it is. It's always so nice to see in in film and art male companionship and male love portrayed in such yeah. a positive way because I think young men have so few examples of seeing two hetero men being like a in a comradeship yeah. love one another in such a positive mm-hmm. way so like for all of those reasons this is it's this such a great portrayal of like you said politics friendship male love companionship solidarity all of that there's also related to that when Sarah who does Sarah tell her that her father when she name? tells Jack that her father you when she tells Jack that her father is just like obsessed with him is that uh, what you're that talking he's, about? he's so proud of the two of the, the two the two yeah, guys the two, the two of them boys. together yes that's a nice reference. okay and that you know that it, it extend that, that an older generation would relish that in this film is also the only know? other person I would say would be Denton the reporter because yeah. he really like from the beginning understands the importance of this strike and clearly has very left politics. And 
He bails all the kids out of jail at one point. He does. Yeah, did you notice? I kept asking myself, where does he get the money to bail them out? Where does he get the money to buy their food? Where is he getting the money? Dude, $5 a kid? There were like 100 kids. I was like, there's no way this guy's pulling this down as a newspaper man and, and the turn but of the But you know what? Here's a thought. Think of this in the historical context. You know, there were the progressive journalists, the, the muckrakers and others, even if they weren't socialists, they were capital P progressives. They were really crucial to the making of the progressive era. Mm. And in many ways, they might have come from very comfortable families, but had a, you know, had a kind of conscience. Yeah. Okay? Sure. So maybe he came from more money than we realize. I don't know. All right. Our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. <laughs> I mean, this we can talk about. This we can talk about. First of all, clearly the very worst is Sn- Snyder. The guy Snyder, running yeah. the refuge where the boys is like a boys' jail, reforms, yeah. you know, a reform sent. Reform isn't the right word, but it's that. And so Snyder does the dirty work. Yes. Pulitzer rakes in the millions, right? And you know, no one would accuse him of having been a shit. No, it was Pulitzer and Hearst to me, just because Hearst is not that, you know, to me they were like they were it's interesting because oh, yeah. you talk so much about the pairing. That again, the good writing mirrors that uh, with Pulitzer yeah. and Hearst so that there's right. equally like two sides of the coin. And our final award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. So I, I have two, okay? One of them is, I think there should have been more of Sarah, the, the sister. Mm-hmm. Sure. I would have liked to have seen more of her story or the mother's, if they had done the characters the way I wanted them to be developed, yes. having the, the sweatshop kind of side. I, I really wanted that there. But having said that, I also have the movie that I want to make now. I want to make the movie of of David. This will be the follow-up to the first movie. I think we want to follow David. I think Jack actually ends up he may even end up out west for all we know, and he's going to be some kind of leader. I, I mean, the guy's got it. But David is going to become the socialist intellectual. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm kind of convinced that that's mm-hmm. the case. And, um, you know, and I would have I'd like to know what books he read to become that. I mean, is that and he had and he had experience on the ground himself. So he'd be like. The best of intellectuals. Well, write that movie and you can get the actor to play the adult David, the one who did it. I mean, or or I'm also like seeing Newsies the series, like the miniseries. Like there's a lot of places sure. that you well, can go absolutely. with this. Now, let me understand this. So, Frank, you don't act or do you act? Uh, not professionally anymore. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I will occasionally do a thing or two, but... Okay, because I was I was being generous. I was going to cast you as the, the grown-up David. Oh, I can still act. Right. Frank can be the... Frank will be the grown-up David. Is this an offer? Because if this is an offer, like <laughs> I, we can talk yeah, about so, it. Yeah, I'll bring the contract next Thursday when we're in Brooklyn together. Perfect, so. perfect. <laughs> For me, this goes to my boys in Brooklyn... I want my spot Conlin. Uh, like I want to go all the way. Yeah, I want that whole that whole story. Wait, I don't know where I don't know where he ends up. I don't think it's the path of Oregon. I think Spot might might have a a rough kind of turn of it. But it would be like an interesting character piece, you know. He might become more of like a Jimmy Hoffa union guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, mine would be racetrack just because I loved Max Casella in this so much that I don't even have a, I don't even have a good narrative for it. I just want to see more of a little Max Casella doing 
a hardcore uh, New York accent and smoking cigarettes and pulling all those faces. <laughs> well, you realize, of course, he, he becomes a bookie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, actually, I, Rivka, did you send me this? Someone had tweeted, like, just got really sad, and Harvey will appreciate this. I just got really sad realizing that all the Newsies from Newsies all probably die in World War One. Oh. Oof. Yeah. Oh. No, wait, wait. No, they don't. They don't? No, they don't. They come back. And they lead the bonus marchers of 1932, 31, 32. And the, you know about the bonus marchers? I uh, no, I don't. Not off the top of my head. Frank, you don't know. <laughs> I, okay. I don't. So during the Depression, the um, the veterans of World War One were guaranteed a bonus payment. It to re- they were going to receive in 1945, but a movement began all across the country. Veterans who were massively unemployed in 1931, 32. They decide they're going to march on Washington. And from all over the country, white, black workers make their way to Washington, D.C. And they occupy the city. And it was called a bonus march. Okay. Oh, wow. Now, it, what's fascinating is because the army in World War I, not surprisingly, was segregated. The veterans were not segregated. This is like this decidedly integrated occupation. Hoover orders, it was MacArthur and his two lieutenants Eisenhower and Patton to surround the camp. And no one knows if it was Hoover who ends up giving the order or or MacArthur himself just takes it unto himself. And they literally storm the camp. To oh, this God. day, we don't know how many people might have been killed because their bodies might have been taken away. And there were families who were part of that occupation. And the, the, the camp dispersed. And I actually can tell you that I have a group of articles that I wanted to find the right writer to turn into a player in New York. So during the Depression, there were Hoovervilles, they were called. These were the homeless setting up these camps, these camps I do of remember shacks. that. I remember Hoovervilles. Okay. On the Hudson River and East River, Shore, well, especially the Hudson River shoreline, all around New York City, there were those Hoovervilles. But there was one at West 79th Street, and it was called, I have a longer story, I'll tell you, Frank, but when I see you. <laughs> Camp Thomas Paine, it was called. Okay. And these were ref- these were refugees from the Bonus March who had come to New York and set up this camp, shacks. Oh, wow. And they flew the American flag over quite a few of their shacks. And there's even a comic moment, I'll just tell you. There was a bus tour, and the animals were being removed from the Central Park Zoo. No. Because they were going to build a better Central Park Zoo. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the newspapers said... The polar bears did not want to leave because they knew what happened to the bonus marchers when they were moved from Manhattan shoreline. <laughs> oh, that's wow! Oh, Sorry, that's, there you go. Okay. That's dark. Oh, Harvey, Wait, we, isn't there one more question? Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up right now. Okay. But I just wanted to say we could, we will. This conversation will be. We'll have you back because it was. It was. We could keep going and going and going. But before we do leave you, just for this episode, we like to ask our guests. In your life, in your daily practice, um, is there something that you do that you feel like it's your sort of daily way to uphold your anti-capitalist values um, in your in your life? I know that you do this in writing and all of those things, but in your daily life. I, I have this rule for myself right now. As soon as the pandemic started, and thank God for Zoom and all this stuff, I, I was never going to retire, but I did because of the pandemic because I didn't want to sit in front of a computer talking to students in, in mass. But then I turned out to be a guy who does like four 
shows a week. And I discovered that my thing is to talk. Mm. Don't, okay. And to talk about capitalism and to talk about, but I have a rule about doing that. I will not simply talk about how bad capitalism is. I want people to realize that we already have the makings of a social democratic America. Mm. The, I mean, for 45 years, ever since I came out of you know college and graduate school, I have watched this, the class where I mentioned earlier goes on and on and on. So I'm a labor unionist. And when I go on shows, it's often with the idea, we've got to hear at least a progressive left socialist argument about what's what's wrong and what could be done. I, I I don't know how else I could put that. Okay. Also, my wife and I live in a very small footprint home of 1,000 square feet. Never did, we decided we didn't want to move because we, we didn't want to occupy more space. Mm -hmm. We have one bathroom for the family of four. I, we could afford to move along the way, but it's too much fun to be intimate this way. So <laughs> why move, right? That is awesome. Thank you, Harvey. Harvey, where can our audience find you and your work? The work, they just go to all the usual bookstore websites and type it in. They're all, even if it's not in stock, it's readily available. Um, I'm very, very active on Twitter um, in spite of Elon Musk's takeover. And um, <laughs> it's, it's at Harvey J.K. H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. And that's about it. That's my, Amazing. that's the way. And I do a lot of shows and I, I absolutely adore you guys. This show is one of the high points of this spring season, I can tell you. Well, that is a high point for us, and your support has meant a lot, so thank you. And this was so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the dystopian action thriller, V for Vendetta. Thank you all.